Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. I think for us, kind of in our current environment, you know, we get skeptical of news stories. We get skeptical of things we hear from people, right? We get skeptical when we hear these reports of, of what's going on. We always feel like there's something more to the story that we're not being told, right? That our superiors are kind of holding something back or they're telling us one thing and really another thing is true. And I don't think this has ever been untrue anytime in history, right? I mean, you can go back and look at, say, The Prince by Niccolo Machiavelli. You can go back and look at Sun Tzu, right? Or Lao Tzu and all these different philosophers and these strategists and stuff all throughout history. And they've always said, hey, control the narrative, control what people are told, control what they hear and how they perceive it. So it's not, it's not bad necessarily for us to be skeptical, but when it's a trusted source and we're skeptical, right, it's tough. And here we're going to see this morning that the disciples want more than what Jesus is telling them, right? They're going to want more. And he's saying, trust and believe in me, and they want more, right? You're holding something back. You're not telling us everything. What in the world are you talking about? We're all confused here. But he's telling them that they need simple faith in him and his words and his works. And it's not that the story isn't big. The fact of the matter is the story's huge, but they've missed it so far. And it's all going to be, you know, this biggest part of the story is going to lie in the future. And they're not ready to kind of be patient in that. And so uh, as we go into John 14, 1 through 14, I'm not sure how foot washing is part of the remembering of Jesus's goodness to us. I think that's left over from the slide last time. Um, and so I, uh, I, I prepared slides this morning and apparently missed that part. But the key thing for today, okay, is a call to simple faith. I think we all struggle with this call to simple faith, right? We want something more complex. We want something experiential. We want something that intervenes in our life in this major way. We all want something that feels a certain way rather than just trusting in the words of Christ, that when we trust and believe in him, we are saved. When we trust and believe in him, we are going to be able to commune with our God later because he is that intercessor for us. Now, before we dive into chapter 14, we're going to stop and and, and kind of do a little side note here. I'm going to go down a little theological nerdy rabbit trail, but I promise you it is important for how we study this text. So John 14 is going to be broken up between this week and next week. So I'm covering the first half of it this week. Jason will be covering the second half of it next week. And there's a lot of tension that builds in the first half that doesn't resolve itself today, but would resolve itself next week. And uh, something that I really want to pull out and note is that this chapter, chapter 14, really relates very deeply to our understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity, Okay, and so we say, okay, why is this important? Everybody believes in the Trinity, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, the truth of the matter is not everybody does believe in the Trinity in that way. There's a a, a certain uh, subset of folks uh, in different churches that believe in what's referred to as modalism. And we're going to talk a little bit about that um, here at the beginning. So Trinitarian theology for us that what we see and what we hold to is that we see three persons in the Godhead, right? The Father, God, the Father, Jehovah right? Jesus Christ, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all three are fully God. They 
have all the attributes of God. They know all, see all, and are all powerful. Yet they are three distinct persons of the Trinity in that the way they work is a little different, and that's by their own will and their own choice. And so we see this, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I think we're going to see this a lot in our passage today. As you see Jesus, he refers to his Father, right? Next week, you're going to see that Jesus says, my Father will give you a helper, the Holy Spirit. And so you see Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and they, they, Jesus speaks as though they're three entities with three different activities and three different things, but they act in perfect harmony and perfect will with one another. Now, the modalists would look at this passage, and they would pull a few verses out. When Jesus says, I and the Father are one, or they say, you know, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And their whole idea with modalism is that God approaches us in three different ways. So there's not three persons in the Trinity, but there's one person who appears three different ways. So in the Old Testament times, he appeared as the Father. And in Jesus' time, he appeared as Jesus. And then later he will appear, uh, you know, after this text as the Holy Spirit, after his resurrection and all this. And what happens is you end up breaking apart this idea that there is a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and start saying, well, it's just God with kind of three different masks on or sort of three different ways of thinking. And so most churches are Trinitarian. But the modalist churches sometimes refer, to, sometimes refer to this as oneness doctrine, that God is one. And I know from, um, you know, discussion that my wife has had with a lot of her friends who are her Muslim, you know, that's one of their biggest concerns if they come and, and listen to Christianity is this idea of a trinity. Because they look at it and say, well, we're polytheistic then. And it's like, no, we're not polytheistic per se. We see these three persons acting in a perfect unity of the Godhead. So this heresy came about back in the third century with Sibelius, and uh, he developed the most clear version of it around 220 AD, and it was refuted by Hippolytus, Tertullian, and Origen at that same time, and he was later excommunicated from the church for this belief. And so when you stop and think as a modern theological distinctive, generally there's, there's a branch of Christianity known as oneness Pentecostalism. And they hold to a modalist view. And Jehovah's Witness holds to a modalist view. But most mainstream churches don't. Um, I bring this up because there are churches within Troy that I know are modalists. And so I know that some of you rub shoulders with people who go to those churches. And so I just kind of want to put this on your radar and have you think through it as we go through this passage, this relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because it's very prominent all through chapter 14. So this week's text and next week's text. And we see this as a top-level theological issue, right? It's easy to stop and look at some theological things and say, what's this really matter, right? Aren't we all trusting in Jesus, and aren't we all trying to be good people and serve the Lord? And it's like, yes, but when we have a fundamentally different view of God, and we have a fundamentally different view of Jesus, we're no longer really worshiping the same God. And I would say that when we look at modalism, you can grab verses out of different parts of the text of the Bible that kind of fit modalism. But when you take all those verses and you put them in context and you start dealing with whole chapters and putting scripture against scripture, you're going to see there's clearly a difference between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? If you're a son, you have to have a father, right? If you're a father, you have a son. And so there's these, these relationships. And when you take the text as a whole, it certainly seems to support Trinitarianism. And so again, just think about that as we go through the text. 
and uh, understand that if we're not seeing that Trinitarian nature, we're not worshiping the same God. Okay, mini sermon is over. We're going to start looking at chapter 14, and as we start setting that up, I want to say that chapter 14 is kind of a really odd break. Okay, so this is the middle of a conversation. They're in the upper room. Jesus has been talking to them and saying he's going to be going away, and that's confusing to them because they're saying, well, we'll go too. No, you're not going yet now, right? You're not going yet. Jesus told him in verse 33 of chapter 13, he says, where I am going, you cannot come, and this has them all worried and worked up. And Jesus had been telling them all along, right? You need to drop everything and follow me. Oh, wait, you can't follow me here. So, right, this is kind of a mental disconnect that's going on with them. And then also in verse 36, he says, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later, right? That's where Peter comes up and he says, you know, that he'll come and lay down his life for Jesus. And Jesus says, no, you'll deny me three times, Right? And keep in mind how, how, how much time lapses between this point when Jesus says you'll deny me three times and the actual denial. Right? We're probably looking at 12 hours or less. Because he's going to, right here they're on a Thursday evening and Peter's going to be denying him at dawn. So there's a lot of tension in this room. Okay, they are worked up, they're upset, they're frustrated, they don't understand it. And Jesus, being Jesus, is patiently and gently guiding them through through this conversation, I would be frustrated. <laughs> Looking at our three points here, we've got, um, you know, as we break this text down, verses one through seven, right? Trust and belief in Jesus is truly the only way to God. And we're going to see how that unpacks. And then we're going to look and see that trust and belief are rooted in the proof that Jesus gave us. So the teaching and the works that he did. And then we're going to see that trust and belief in Jesus is what leads us to act on our own faith. So let's start breaking this down here. Let's go ahead and read verses 1 through 7 together. So we're here in John 14, starting in says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, that I'll come again and take you myself? that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So setting up this passage, let not your hearts be troubled follows this point when he says, Peter, you're going to deny me three times, right? Those things are connected. And so that's kind of that odd break at 13 and 14. And so he says this, it's about belief, right? Believe in God, believe also in me. Again, two, two beliefs, right? Believe in both. Believe also in me. And that's really what this whole passage is pointing to. Something you're going to see is that the only real imperative in this passage is to believe in Jesus. And he's closing the loop on where he's going. Look at verse two. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I prepare a place for you? Right? He's saying this. When, when he said he's going away, he's saying where he's going, right? His father's house. And so he's saying he's going to prepare a place and it's for their good and he's going to return. And this really gets to the heart of the belief. He's pressing into whether they believe him or not. 
because he says that as an interrogative, right? If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you, right? He's being very specific. I've told you this. Why are you asking again? Do you believe? And again, preparing a place, this doesn't mean like a construction project of condos in heaven, right? He's saying there are many rooms. They exist. There's room for all of us who come and believe. But he's saying he's preparing a place for them. In other words, that we would be glorified as he's going to be glorified in the sense that we will be in front of the Father. He's preparing a place. And how does he prepare a place, right? He prepares the way to it. So we see this in verse 4, right? And you know the way to where I am going. And that's very confusing to Thomas, right? Jesus is harking back earlier in the evening. He said that he would be betrayed. And then earlier in John, he said he would be lifted up back after the triumphal entry that he would be lifted up. So it's like he's told them over and over what's going to happen. You know, he might've done it in ways that are a little confusing. And when they see what's happening, it might be confusing, but he has told them, right? It's not like he's springing this on them because even when he said he'd be lifted up, they were upset about it. They understood. And you notice this, right? Thomas contradicts Jesus, right? That's a bold move but he gets a gentle rebuke because Thomas says to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? He's saying, we don't know the destination and we don't know the path. So think about this, right? If you, if you know you're going to Disney World, you know I-75 is the way there, you, the destination and the way. And Jesus is saying this, you know, he's, he's going to the destination and he's preparing the way for us. So he says in this statement, right? Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So when he says, I am the way, it's through Christ alone that we're saved. There is no other way. And he's saying this, you know, if God is the destination, he is the way. So all these folks that want to come and know God, right, for, for the, the Jewish leaders of that time who want to come to know God, right, but they're rejecting Jesus. He's saying they're not on the way. For the Romans and the Greeks who worship many gods and are always trying to appease their gods because their gods are angry and vengeful, right, he's saying they're not on the way. They're not on the way to the destination. But he's the way. And this is part of Christ's priestly work. We think of Jesus as prophet, priest, and king, right? Well, preparing the way is the priestly work. You think back in the old tabernacle, right? The priest, the holy priest would be consecrated, set aside, and he would go in and do the intercessive work, right? On the behalf of the Jews to have forgiveness, right? He would take care of going into the holy of holies and all that. And so that he prepared the way. And Jesus is doing that priestly work on our behalf. You stop and think Isaiah 35, 8, It tells of a highway called the way of holiness. And it even says that even fools can take it and not go astray. There's hope for all of us. Even fools can take it and not go astray. And that's the thing. Trusting in Jesus is the way. His work on the cross is the way. You don't have to be smart. You don't have to do special works. That's the way. That highway of holiness is the way. Hebrews 9 talks about how Christ's blood, as he entered his high priest, interceded for us. John 10, we think back to John 10 that we went through. He said, right, he is the gate of the sheep pen, right? When someone's jumping the fence, 
I'm trying to call sheep another way that's not legitimate. But Jesus is the gate, the one true way and, and out. And that when the, when the shepherd comes, the sheep hear his voice and come to the gate, right? And so that's the thing. When we say we want to know God, we need to know Jesus. He is the way. We don't get by on works or the law or piety or wealth or friends or family, only through Christ. And then he says this, I am the truth. He's the word that was with God and is God, Right? We must believe in the word. The, Hebrew, the book of Hebrews describes Jesus as the true manna and the true tabernacle, right? He fills all those Old Testament archetypes that we saw. All those things were a shadow pointing to him. So he is the truth. He is the one that all things are measured against. It all points to Christ. And so if Jesus is truth, Everything uses him as a standard, right? This is part of his prophetic work. When we say prophet, priest, and king, this is part of his prophetic work because what he speaks is true. What he wills is right. And everything else measures against that yardstick. What did Christ teach us and what was Christ's example? And then he says, I am the life. We stop and think, what's he mean by I am the life? Is he saying a way of life, a philosophy of life? What does that mean? I am the life. Stop and think about it. He's about to, in in like 24 hours from now, he's going to be laying his very life down. He is the sheep to be slaughtered, right? They're at a Passover meal, remembering back to the sheep, to the slaughter that happened when they put the, the blood on their doorposts and death passed over them, right? He is the life that sacrificed on behalf of the forgiveness of sins that death passes over. And he is also the life that gives us life, right? That his righteousness gets imputed to us and our sin is put on him. So our sin's put on him and he's sacrificed in our place that our blood doesn't get shed for our salvation. Instead, his blood was shed for us. He gives life. This is his kingly work in this sense that Jesus also serves as the example of a perfect life, right? He stood up and, and had no sin in his earthly Uh, flesh vessel, right, that we have. In a human body form, he had no sin. So he is that perfect life we can measure our life to. Not that we measure it for salvation, but we measure it for sanctification, right? And we talked through foot washing last week, and there you go. That's why I left that footnote in. There we go. But we talked about foot washing last week, and we thought about our sanctification, right, the growth of becoming more Christ-like. He was that perfect example, this also, that this is the sixth I am statement in John. Now, remember, every time somebody says I am, right, is when Jesus says I am, this is echoing the Old Testament I am, right? That God is the great I am. And so when he says I am, he is, he is declaring himself God, right? This has gotten people upset in the past. But this statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life, I mean, he's saying I am God, right? And he's in this perfect unison with the Father and will indeed. So think about it. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. And we know that Jesus stands, right, as an intercessor for us. Those of us adopted in Christ as sons and daughters and heirs, and others who come are found guilty. And so verse 7 here, he's saying, if you had known me, you would have known the Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Notice he's 
he's not saying if or whatever. He's pronouncing it so. Well, he is saying if, but he's pronouncing it so. You have seen the Father, right? And again, this kind of gets to that modalist and Trinitarian kind of uh, confusion that, that can happen sometimes. But Jesus is saying, you've seen everything the Father wanted to show you. Through me, right? You have seen the Father. You've seen his will. You've seen his work. You've seen his desires. You've seen his rights and wrongs of, of what he says is right and wrong. You know the Father because you know the Son, and no one, not even Thomas, can argue with that. As we kind of look into verses 8 through 11, you know, our trust and belief gets rooted in the proof Jesus gave us. So where does trust and belief come from? Let's stop and look here. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So to some extent, we got to kind of cut these guys some slack, right? They're in the Old Testament time, you know, the Old Testament mindset. They're still thinking law. They're still wanting a savior from the Romans, right? There's, there's all this confusion. They've been walking with Jesus, but they're still not quite understanding what he's saying. And I think all of us would be in that upper room if we were there just as confused because we've had 2,000 years of our church fathers kind of dissecting these words every which way possible, and we've worked to kind of put scripture against scripture for 2,000 years, and they don't have the benefit of all that yet. You know, they want the father Jehovah, the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? The deliverer from Egypt, the conqueror through David. But notice something. Philip asking for proof right after Jesus corrected Thomas and said that they know God the Father and have seen God the Father through him, right? What Philip's asking for is like a theophany, like show us some miraculous sign of God. They've been watching miraculous signs of God, right? The lame walking, right? People, you know, people being healed, Jesus giving these miraculous works, and he's still asking for something. Stop and think about this. Back in the time of Moses, Exodus 24, Moses and uh, Abinadab, I'm trying to remember their names. There's a couple listed specifically, but then the uh, Abinadab and Abihu, I think. Anyway, bottom line, and 70 elders of Israel went up the mountain. Jesus, or uh, God called them up the mountain. And it says that they, these 70 elders, beheld God and ate and drank with him. Okay, beheld God and ate and drank with him. God told them back down the mountain. He said, Moses, come on up. I'm going to give you stuff, right? A couple chapters go by and Moses comes back down. And what does he find? 70 elders that ate and drank with God had a golden calf built. Okay, so it's like when we're depending on these signs and wonders and we're saying, show me something miraculous, it's kind of never enough, right? When we're trying to please those visual senses, have this experience and this feeling, it never feels like enough. And they built a golden calf right after eating and drinking in, in the... Uh, the presence of the Lord. 
And so when Philip's saying this, show us this and it's enough, Jesus is like, that'll never be enough. I've shown you all this, but have faith in me. Believe in me. That's what he says very specifically. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father's in me? And then at the end here in verse 11, right? Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me or else believe on account of the works themselves. He's saying, we've got this track record laid out. Another one's not going to prove it to you. You believe or you don't. Right? So when he says that you've seen the Father through him, Jesus does the will of the Father. Perfect connection between them. His words are of the Lord. His works are of the Lord. So the disciples are kind of displaying this lack of faith in some ways, right? Like right alongside the lost leaders of Israel that they're dealing with. They demand signs, but they've seen signs already. Here, you know, the the leaders of Israel have seen Jesus's works. They've heard his, his words, and they still don't believe. In fact, they're ready to crucify him. So the question that sits here is, do the disciples believe Jesus or not? They've seen him heal the sick and raise the dead, feed 5,000 people. They've been watching Jesus for three years. They saw a demonstration of God's power in every one of those miracles. They saw God's light in every one of those teachings. They saw God's purity through the perfect life of Jesus Christ. And Jesus has given them these words of God. So he's saying the proof is there, right? The works are there. And it is enough to have faith and believe. Do they have faith and believe? We get to the end here in the, the third point. Trust and belief in Jesus leads us to act on our faith. So are they acting on their faith when they're calling for more miracles? And belief, through belief, the disciples are still going to have faith in Christ. So it says, truly, truly, in verse 12, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because... I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Nobody's ever done any mischief with those verses, huh? Stop and think and unpack this. How does, how does, how does he mean this, right? He's saying in belief, you have Christ, right? That these disciples are going to do not just the works that he did, like healing and preaching and evangelizing and shepherd and teaching God's people, but greater works. What are the greater works? What does he mean by this? So greater works, the rest of the New Testament shows us what greater works means, right? It's through these disciples that the word of God is evangelized, right? It's through them that it's written, And then later on, church fathers that organize it together into a biblical canon that we still can hold today. It's through them that the gospel reaches Asia, the Middle East reaches Rome. It's through their works that we still today get instruction and discipleship, right? And Jesus is saying, I've done the works, I've given the proof, and you guys are going to take this out to the world, right? You're going to carry it out. And it's interesting here because he says they're going to do it because Jesus is going to the Father, right? So all these times when he's saying, I'm going to the Father, and they're like, oh, no, what are you talking about? He's saying, because I'm going to the Father, you're going to do these greater works. Because Jesus knows, and you're going to see it in next week's text, 
that God is going to send the Holy Spirit as a helper, right? And you later see that in the day of Pentecost. And Jesus knows what's going to happen, and they don't get it yet, right? And to us, we often look back, right? And we say, well, Jesus healed the blind and made the lame walk and raised the dead. And like, we don't see that today anymore, you know? And sometimes we see these things that we know are a miracle, right? Where we see some divine intervention where someone's sick and heals quickly, you know, in a time when they, we thought they were not going to make it and they make it. But we see, I mean, even just when a baby's born, we, we often just ponder the miracle of a child and how a child's created and carried in the womb and born. And we, feel, we see these kinds of miracles. But do we trust in them and do we believe? Through this whole passage, that's the only command Jesus gave was to believe. He didn't say believe and. He didn't say go do these works and stuff and earn it or earn your belief, believe. And it's tough to simply believe. The disciples have been struggling with it. And Jesus is simply saying, believe me, all through his words. So we stop and think, how does, this, how does this come to us? How does this apply to us? What do we take away from this? I think it's important to stop and think the disciples lived in a time, like I said, the Greeks and the Romans believed in all these different gods. And these gods would manip, you know, in their belief system would manipulate man, right? They would take their anger out on man, right? They put him through a shipwreck, right? Well, Poseidon wrecked our ship or whatever, right? There's all these different things. They had to appease the gods in order to have a good crop that year. They had to appease the gods by sacrificing a child. They would have to serve their God in some way that was dehumanizing and cruel. They had to appease their God just to have peace. And you stop and think of the Israelite leaders, right? They're taking the Old Testament law and they're adding all these things to it, right? So it becomes a law of their own making. And these Pharisaical laws added to the word of God and it pushed it upon people in some kind of purity test. So the Greeks and Romans are trying to appease gods and the Israelite leaders are trying to make people perfect because that was the only way they believed it satisfied their system. And in both systems, everything has to be earned. You don't get anything if you didn't earn it. But Jesus doesn't come to his disciples and say, earn it. He says, believe. Believe in his words, believe in his works. Right? And it's that simple. And sometimes we feel frustrated with that, right? It just seems a little too simple, right? Because in our time period, the zeitgeist tells us there should be no law at all, no God at all. It says there's no standard of truth or virtue. Everybody gets to define it themselves. No one wants to be told what to do. No one wants to be told what to think. And certainly no one wants to be told what to believe, in fact, people kind of think we're crazy if we believe in anything, right? We're supposed to be skeptical of everything, and we're supposed to hold all of it at arm's length and say, you know what? I'm sovereign, and I'll decide what's right. We want to be self-reigning, unchallenged. Our culture wants us to believe that all roads lead to God if there's a God, and you better not try to define what that means or else you're exclusive. You're not inclusive. We'd much rather sit and think in terms of karma, right? I can earn good graces by good works, and then if I do something bad, my account goes down by a little bit. 
That's a much more comforting thought because we get to measure it by us. We get to measure it by ourselves and not by the life of Jesus. We think it's something we can earn instead of trusting in a prophet and a priest and a king to intercede for us, to be the way, the truth, and the life, namely Jesus. And the disciples really aren't different than us, right? Humanity has not changed over thousands of years, right? The gospel to only believe in Jesus, that feels so simple. There's got to be something more. That's too trite, too ineffective. It doesn't match the desires. They're saying, show me God, show me God. And wherever it goes, the Christian faith becomes countercultural because every other faith or philosophy becomes man-centered, human-centered to its core. Jesus says, believe in him and his works. And the world says, look in your heart and trust yourself. Believe in yourself. Jesus says, look to him. He's the way, the truth, and the life and stands against all humanity's desires. And look at how the disciples struggle to trust in him. He makes this exclusive statement I am the way, the truth, and the life, but it's not the kind of exclusive statement they want, right? They want to say, come to the law, kick the Romans out, right? They want to kind of tribal up again as Israel. And it also puts them outside if they don't believe, right? They want to trust on their, their, their lineage. You know, I'm of the tribe of David, or I'm of, or of, of the people of David. You know, we are the sons of Abraham, right? They want to trust in their birthright. They want to trust in their lineage, their, their ethnicity, and he's saying, no, it's belief that puts you in or out. Doesn't matter which tribe you're born in. Doesn't matter who your dad was. It's belief that puts you in or outside. That's totally against the grain of everything they felt, just like it's against the grain of everything we feel when we say we want to earn it. This is a call to believe. And again, goes against our nature of skepticism, our nature that doesn't want to conform. It doesn't want to put faith in anything. It's a call for us to place our allegiance at a time when we want to step back and pledge allegiance to nothing, right? I want to stand back and I want to decide how I connect and I want to connect on my own terms. And Jesus is saying, nope, you're adopted and these are your brothers and sisters. Like them or don't, you know? You better learn to love them. (laughs) He calls us and he puts us inside or out by putting that belief in us. And it's such a simple statement. And I think that's one of the hardest parts for us. Because when we say, trust and believe in our Lord Jesus Christ, grow in your Christ-likeness, it just feels too simple. We want to muddy that up, right? We want to add things to it. Well, this is how you dress. This is how you look. This is what you post on Facebook. This is how a Christian should do this. This is the music you need to listen to, right? We always want to put kind of these own little pharisaical things around it. It's saying, do we trust and do we believe in the works of Christ and the teaching of Christ? I think it's so hard to be satisfied with Christ. The simple faith just doesn't seem like enough to confess, to repent, to believe, to love our neighbor and place our hope in Christ. We're often asking for experiences or miracles or more proof I want to stop and and really kind of dig into this term Jesus says. The disciples will do greater works than that. And we know that there were some healings, right? There were some miraculous works that the disciples did that we don't typically see today, right? We don't come along and, and see a pastor legitimately point to someone and say, you're healed. 
right? We know ones that try, we know ones that do, and we know some of the shenanigans that go on behind it. But the reality is, Jesus isn't referring to that kind of miracle. When you stop and think of what a miracle is, how do you define that? A miracle is like a divine intervention, something supernatural that happens. And I would sit and say this, resting in simple faith is a miracle because there's not one of us who came this way on our own, right? If Jesus didn't come and have this divine intervention, if the Holy Spirit didn't come to us and put faith in us and bring us along, we would be at brunch right now. We would be sleeping in right now. We might be sleeping off a hangover right now. Right? Just our very salvation is a miracle. Our very salvation is a divine intervention in our lives. And so when you stop and think of Jesus telling the disciples they will do greater works, Jesus foresaw and knew that the gospel would go out not just among this Jewish clan, but would go out to the Romans and the Greeks and the Africans and the Asians that it would spread all across the world. He knew this greater work is actually the intervention in our heart. And we talk about this a lot of times when we think about the healings of Jesus. When we go through the gospels and we talk about Jesus healed the lame and we need to recognize we are the lame. Jesus healed the sick. We need to recognize that we are sick. Jesus raised Lazarus and we need to recognize that we are dead, but raised in Christ, right? We touch on it all the time. Our very salvation is a miracle, it's a divine intervention, and a lot of times we don't think of it that way. It just feels ho-hum. I, I walked forward at a, a Bible school, or I, you know, I came to understand Christ over sort of this long period of time of wrestling with the Bible and wrestling with theology, right? Or we say, you know, I raised my hand at a, a Billy Graham crusade, and those are all legitimate ways that we come to Christ, but they were all a divine miracle, a divine intervention. The endurance of the gospel through the ages in the face of wars, and famines, plagues, pestilence, slavery, migration is a miracle of God. He has sustained it. We think of Paul, right? Very chief of sinners. He watched over his students as they stoned Stephen. He had Christians arrested. He was on his way to Damascus to arrest more. And what happened? He was confronted on the road, right? And we think of this miraculous confrontation but we all had that miraculous confrontation. When we come and we trust in Christ, we've had this same kind of intervention where God said, hey, why aren't you believing in me? Come and believe in me. And for some of us, that's a struggle over time. For some of us, it's an all-at-once rush. However that looked in your life, if you come and you trust and you believe in Christ, that's legit. And that intervention may have taken years. It may have taken days. It may have taken 10 minutes. But either way, it was a divine intervention. It was the miracle that we want, that we need. So next time we're sitting and wondering where God's at, and we're asking for miracles and we're asking for proof, we can come back and look at our own trust and belief in Christ and know that he has done his miraculous work in us and that he will continue to do miraculous work in ways that we won't even recognize. But we promise he will take us home, right? Jesus said here in this passage, I go to prepare a place for you, and I will come back and take you there with me. We need to rest in that, that simple faith, without worrying about the miracle.
ways because we have them. We have the record in the Bible. We have it in our lives. So look around this room and you can see we're sitting among miracles, right? A hundred plus miracles that God has done. And it may not look how we expect and it may not look how the world expects it to look. But we know that when we trust, we are a miracle because God has divinely intervened in us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you, God, for your intervention. Lord, that trust and faith in you doesn't come from our own works, but it comes through the work of Christ preparing a way for us, shedding his blood on the cross. And Lord, we thank you, God, that you would, that you would condescend to do so. God, that you would send your son to do so, that you loved us and cared for us to make a way rather than giving us the judgment we deserve. Lord, I pray that each one of us can look at our faith and our salvation and know it's a miracle. And Lord, I pray for those wrestling through salvation. God, there are those who struggle in faith, who struggle to know and understand Christ. Lord, and there are people in this room who are saved and not saved. Lord, there are people in this room who wrestle with it. There are people who feel confidence in it. And God, we know that each one of us is in your hands. And God, you will do the work that you do. Give us grace to trust in your miracles, to trust in your works, to trust in the word of Christ. And Lord, to carry your word forward. God, give us all grace through this next busy week to come. We thank you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.